This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to The Bunker Global, where we tell you what you need to know about news and politics from around the globe. It's a sprawling and complex world out there, so every Friday we're here to make it feel a little easier to comprehend. On this edition, mass trials in a militant gang crackdown in El Salvador, Xi Jinping reshuffles his top nuclear team in his latest power grab, and Russia's abductions of Ukrainian children. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and today I'm joined by Laura Macon Isherwood, the former London Bureau Chief of Feature Story News, who also works as a correspondent for the British Forces Broadcasting Service. Thank you for joining me, Laura. Hello. No problem. Laura and I will be discussing news from China and Russia shortly. But first, I spoke with Dr. Doug Specht, reader in cultural geography and communication at the University of Westminster, to discuss sweeping arrests of thousands of alleged gang members in a draconian bid to quash organised crime in El Salvador. Doug, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you very much for having me. So there have been more than 70,000 arrests in El Salvador of accused gang members, and now they might start putting 900 people on trial at the same time. How did we get here? Well, this has been a long time in the coming. So this isn't actually something that's as new as we might be led to believe. Um, it's certainly something that we, we've seen a lot more in the media in the last four years since Bukele became president. But this is something that's been in the making since the end of the Civil War uh, in the early 1990s. So crime and particularly gang-related crime has always been an issue in El Salvador. The reasons behind that are numerous and complex, but essentially any time that you have a fallout from a civil war, we tend to see gang crime and gang-related issues in countries. Uh, but also the relationship between El Salvador and the United States has led to El Salvador being used quite often as a place to want to export gangs and gang violence from the United States, particularly the prisons of uh, California, uh, back to Central America. This particular crackdown from Bukele, which started just over a year ago now in, in uh, March of uh, 2022, is probably one of the biggest crackdowns that we've seen, but it's certainly not the first. We haven't reached the end of this with Bukele yet. Um, every other president who has tried this has seen things bounce back to where they were or potentially much worse. Um, this is the longest that we've seen a crackdown. The special regulations have now been extended 11 times, so 18 months into these special regulations that allow for people to be detained without trial. And we haven't seen what the end game is. We haven't seen what happens when we release uh, or remove the special regulations when we try to return yeah. to some sort of sense of normality in El Salvador. In terms of what's been passed to allow 900 people to be put on trial at one time, is that basically Bukele's attempt to, to make sure there can't be any sort of... Uh, bounce back? Because essentially, whether it can be proven that these people are guilty of what they're accused of or not, he's going to push as hard as physically possible to jail all of them so that there can't be that kind of pushback. Yeah, I mean, of the of the 70,000 who have been detained since the action started, 5,000 people have been released. 
And there's estimates that about 30% at least have absolutely no connection with gang crime uh, whatsoever. So we're talking about 1% of the population being arrested. And then an unknown number of those people actually really being connected to gang crime, but probably a lot lower uh, than the statistics that are put out by the Bukele government are, are suggesting. The, the special um, powers actually really only allow technically for people to be detained for 15 days without charge. So a generous person might suggest that these large scale trials of 500, 600 people at a time could be put in place in order to try and process these thousands of people in a more timely fashion. Uh, however, I fear that you're probably closer to, to the truth of the matter, that these large-scale trials, which are actually uh, often being done by collecting people based on where they were picked up or where they are from, rather than related crimes or, or being related to each other. So it's pretty arbitrary who ends up in the, the 500. How is this crackdown happening? It seems to be quite heavily militarised at this point, and it seems that particular areas have sort of been siphoned off and picked as places where everyone can be picked up. They essentially just say, go and locate an area, lock it down, send in troops, and then anyone who's around the sort of age and profile of what they think could be a gang member gets swept up. That's pretty much it. Yes, uh, Tuesday this week saw 7,000 troops supported by 100 police moving into the Cabanas region. They've essentially erected a human and in places physical fence around the region of Cabanas. No one in, nobody out as they go through person by person picking up everybody uh, who they believe is connected to the gangs. So it's very heavy handed um, and a huge amount of what appeared to be arbitrary arrests, arbitrary detention with then these mass trials, which again, you know, you're picking up thousands of people at a time. You can't check why you're picking them all up. Then you're processing them all five, 600 at a time. No one's getting a, a, a fair hearing there. It certainly, you know, is against various international rules and regulations about how individuals are fairly treated in trials. The scale of it is obviously that's gaining attention. But is there also a level of Bekele to me seems to have a level of shamelessness around the way he is acting? And I saw that he at one point described himself as the the world's coolest dictator. What is he like? And is it just a, is there some level of that he is doing this? In a, in a means of almost feeling gleeful in doing what he's doing, not doing it for pure practical reasons. Kelly's a, a hugely interesting character. I was there in El Salvador when he was elected in, in 2019, and I was, I was working as an election observer, and our findings were that there was a pretty much a free and fair election, the kind that we can only dream of in the UK in some ways. <laughs> um, but what's very interesting is about the way that he was campaigning. His uh, new ground was how he was presenting himself between the old uh, parties that had emerged from the Civil War. And he was very much at that time positioning himself as the social media president, as the president of the future, leather jacket wearing, baseball cap wearing, on Twitter all the time, embracing things like TikTok and, and this kind of thing, and really using those tools to speak to what we might refer to as the new generation of El Salvador. And this is something that we've seen uh, all the way through his presidency. Regularly, uh, we might suggest following a, a Trump-style approach to, to ruling a country, announces policies via Twitter rather than through the media or, or through legislation, and is driving the country a lot through his social media, where indeed he has referred to himself as the world's best dictator, the dictator of the world, the dictator of El Salvador, 
El Salvador's best dictator. He updates his bio, uh, Twitter bio handle uh, more often than, than most people do. So there, there is this sense. But he also came in saying that he will be tough on crime. And this is one of the things that he's pushing through and following through on more than perhaps any of the other policies that he was looking at. It's part of his branding there, wanting to try and you know, boost El Salvador on the world stage. Because, I mean, we are talking about El Salvador now because of this, and we are talking about him in a way that we we might not if he hadn't framed himself in in such a hardline light. Um, I'm, I'm not sure it's about positioning El Salvador on the world stage. I think um, he's very interested in positioning himself on the world stage. I think he's very interested in Ukele being a sort of a, a world brand. Whether El Salvador goes with that or not, I think might be inconsequential to him. He's previously been the mayor of San Salvador. He's been in politics for a very long time. And, and for a long time, people in El Salvador have looked to him as being someone who has a lot of the answers for the country, whether we agree with those answers or not. Um, and his popularity is extraordinarily high at the moment as we approach the next round of presidential elections in, in February uh, 2024. You, you mentioned that he's popular at the moment. Is what he's he's doing in terms of the, the crackdown scenario that we're talking about is that popular or is it also a kind of the sort of thing where it's the public recognise it is quite ugly, but because crime numbers go down, they see it as a an unfortunate circumstance that is happening, but maybe for a wider betterment of the country? But certainly the polls that you see suggest that it's very popular with, depending on who you read, between 70 and 95% of people supporting the crackdowns in El Salvador. Now, those polls are not carried out by anyone other than those who are enacting these policies, generally speaking. I think there is likely a good deal of support. There, there often is a good deal of support for these crackdowns. However, there is uh, considerably more opposition for these crackdowns once you start talking to people on the ground than, than you might get from any kind of poll. Um, I've been working for the last 20 or so years with people in El Salvador. I see emails from people who are deeply, deeply concerned about this deeply concerned that this also extends into the arrests of people who are involved in human rights work, who are involved in environmental projects, who are involved in anything that might be seen as being against the status quo of the government position. We've not fully seen the erosion of human rights defenders, environmental defenders being arrested under these laws. But I suspect that we will see this happening more frequently. Cabanas is particularly, I think, vulnerable to this. And I'll be watching very closely what's happening over the next couple of weeks with these uh, 8,000 new troops deployed very close to a lot of colleagues that I work with in El Salvador. Doug, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Next up on The Bunker Global... Xi Jinping has replaced two generals in charge of overseeing his nation's nuclear arsenal in a major shakeup of his military. Laura, what exactly has happened here? 
Well, that's a very good question because there's not a lot of clarity around why this has happened and exactly where those that have been shuffled out have actually gone. It's said to be the biggest shakeup in China's military in around a decade. Two top generals that were overseeing the country's nuclear missiles have been moved out of their positions and replaced by two other men who are seen as outside the ranks, so people that hadn't worked on the nuclear arsenal before. They've come from the Air Force and from the Navy, and they don't necessarily have that much experience in the army or indeed, as I said, with that nuclear arsenal. So there's a lot of questions as to why and also where those former generals have gone. Yeah, does it feel like the the new pair are kind of stooges, for want of a better word? They're not being moved in because they know loads about what to do. They've been moved there because they're probably not going to say no to Xi Jinping. Well, it certainly feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? It's like promoting somebody beyond their competence in a way, if I can be so bold, because they might not be able to push back in the way that someone that knows everything about that arsenal can, or indeed who has the sort of support of those people that are working beneath them immediately. So there's a lot of speculation as to whether this shift by Xi Jinping was actually a bid to try to get more control over what's happening there. So this group uh, looking after the nuclear missiles in China Who is in this group? What is this group? Well, it's obviously part of China's military, but they are a a separate group and they are in charge of this nuclear arsenal, which is obviously really important strategically for China to maintain that level of power as they see it in that part of the world. Of course, nuclear deterrents, we have them here in the UK. They are available around the world as well. It's a sort of a, a bid to try to keep a status quo, if you like. It's a deterrent rather than something that's supposed to be used as an aggressive force. But obviously, in China's case, having a nuclear arsenal in specific positions is really vital for them. They will see that as a way to uh, maintain power and to maintain their place in the global balance. And having people in control of it that, A, know what they're doing is obviously vital, but B, who Xi Jinping believes he can work with, I suppose, if we're saying that diplomatically, is also important for him too in order to try to uh, work his military in the way that he might want. What has the official explanation been here for this move, aside from what we've kind of inferred could be going on? What are they suggesting has actually happened? Well, there's not been a lot of information that's been put out by the state. In a speech last month, Xi Jinping said that he was maintaining the party's absolute leadership over the military and ensuring stronger combat readiness. That's one of his main pushes at the moment. There have been a lot of conversations over the last five years, I'd say, about China's strength and particularly what's happening in the Indo-Pacific. And of course, the relationship between China and Taiwan, which is a very uh, controversial area. China believes that it should have control of that island. Taiwan says it's an independent state. The US, the UK have been supporting that. And there's been a lot of sort of Navy shifts from the UK and from the US pushing through the Taiwan Strait and a bid to try to make sure that there is still access to that shipping lane, uh, which is legal internationally having that access. And so China is obviously trying to exert perhaps more influence there. It could be seen as a bit of a threatening stance, I suppose, if people want to look at it that way. But ultimately, it seems like Xi Jinping is trying to make sure that he has control over that nuclear arsenal and also to maintain that strategic uh, strength in that region too. What does this mean for his uh, his interaction with the rest of the world? I mean, how have other people reacted to it and looking externally? 
Is there much reason to be particularly concerned here? I think there's a lot of talk around China's military and how big it is. Should we be be worried with what this means about how China interacts with the rest of the world? Well, there's been a lot of focus, as I said, on China's strength over the last five years. People are worried about what might be being planned there. There have been, it seems, those kinds of pushes towards Taiwan, which would be quite devastating uh, politically and also strategically for the West in particular. There is within the UK, within the US, a focus on the Indo-Pacific at the moment, trying to build relationships with the likes of Singapore, with Taiwan as well. We've seen these surprise visits by Western diplomats to that island to try to make sure that they have some kind of presence. But it is worrying. And China will continually push out this message that they do not believe that the West should be getting involved there, that it should be an island that is controlled by China, by Beijing. And so it's really quite tense around there at the moment. The Chinese government says that actually this shift might be part of an anti-corruption push. So they're trying to exert control, they say, on people who might be seen as being involved in corruption within the military. And that might be to do with procurement contracts or other cash flows that might be moving through that part of defence. And there may be some investigations going on into what those generals that have been removed uh, have been up to. But of course, nobody knows where they are at the moment. And they certainly haven't released any statements themselves. That sounds like quite a a broad brush to me. In this uh, corruption crackdown, I mean, who has been swept up in that? Is it essentially just anyone Xi Jinping doesn't like? Well, I mean, we can only know what the state wants to push out. There's been speculation, of course, that this might have been a reaction to that move by the Wagner Group to try to uh, take over or push against uh, President Putin in Russia, concerned that actually there might be that similar kind of dissent, that kind of coup that might take place within China as well and a push against the government. But of course, this is all speculation. People who around the world are looking in on that country rather than being within it. And, you know, the government will only tell you what they want you to know. Yeah, and I suppose particularly if they are paranoid about what might be happening, that's uh, another reason for China to limit even more information coming out. Yeah, absolutely. And there is that push constantly from Beijing for control. And we've seen, as we've spoken about in multiple episodes previously, the sort of tensions within Hong Kong, the crackdown there on people's free speech. And so it certainly feels like Xi Jinping is is wanting to have a little bit more say on the the minutiae, I suppose, those details within each department that he has control in, and specifically at the moment in defence, perhaps he has been shaken a little bit by what's going on in Russia. Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dutton. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm in 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Britain's ambassador to Ukraine, Melinda Simmons, has spoken out on allegations that there have been mass abductions of children from Ukraine carried out by Russia, describing these as part of a hybrid invasion of the nation. Laura, what did Simmons say about these actions? What do we know about what is going on there? 
Well, this has come from an interview that she did with a Ukrainian news outlet called Army Inform. And she said there that Russia and Putin specifically is taking children from Ukraine, putting them into camps. And she says, brainwashing them, essentially, trying to turn them against their own parents in some respects, and also to change their view on Ukraine. And she believes that it's being done in a bid to try to remove what she called the next generation of people who might be able to defend Ukraine, sort of hollowing out from the lower age groups in a bid to try to remove yeah. those who might be coming up in the next few years to try to fight against Russia. It's quite a serious accusation, that. But of course, we have seen figures that appear to show that thousands of children have been moved out of Ukraine, either forcefully or they've been perhaps orphaned in this war and taken under the guise of being an offer of help for them and, and an offer of care. But it's just quite a stark message from her to say that this is what they are doing. Well, what does the intelligence suggest? I know this is one where there is the speculation surrounding this, and clearly Russia are going to deny this kind of thing heavily as you know, you, you would if you were doing something like this. You know, what does the intelligence suggest? What have reports said about what is going on and the scale of this? Well, Ukrainian officials themselves have said that they believe 16,226 children have actually been deported to Russia so far. They say of those, around 10,513 have been located. And they say that since they were deported, just 300 have been returned to their families. So that is huge in terms of figures. The European yeah. Parliament, however, have gone much further. They say the range of children that might have been removed from the country and from those parts of Ukraine that are currently being controlled by uh, Russia's military might reach around 300,000, which is just an incredible figure. But that's dating back to uh, the 2014 annexation of Crimea. So they believe that this is going on or has been going on for years. It's not just over the last uh, couple. Now, yeah. according to a study by Yale University, they've been looking into this as well. And they say that they believe that there are around 43 camps across Russia and in Crimea that are being used to uh, educate, as the Russians put it, children, re-educate them, which puts you in mind of those kinds of Uyghur camps, doesn't it, in China? It's a similar kind of messaging and, yeah. and sort of wording that's being used. And they say that children that are as young as four months old have actually been put into these camps Camps. And they say that it's a patriotic move in terms of the Russian perspective, that it is military related. And they're trying to re-educate, as I say, as the Russians uh, yeah. say it, say it is, those children to try to see Ukraine in a different light and essentially turn them against their parents, which is just unbelievable. Is this clearly something, it appears, that is is much more systematic than, than Russia would like to admit. I mean, it, it appears that the, the narrative around that, as you say, that some children have been taking for almost sanctuary is what they're almost suggesting, which to me feels like quite an obscene suggestion for them to, to make. But does the evidence not suggest that this is something, as you say, it's been a, a process and something which is happening with quite a clear will and plan around it? Well, it seems so. And that's what a lot of um, sort of analysts are saying. That's definitely what the UK ambassador to Ukraine is saying as well, Melinda Simmons. She's calling it horrendous. Um, and it certainly seems like that. I think what's really interesting is that actually there has been some admission from the head of the Belarusian Red Cross, because they've admitted that they have actually been involved in removing these children and, and taking them into Russia. So there's certainly some sort of fact there, at least from the Belarusian uh, Red Cross, saying that this is actually happening. Yeah. 
just how wide it is. Obviously, we've got disparity in the figures. Ukraine's officials saying that there's around 16,000. European Parliament saying 300,000 children that might have been involved. And it's just quite devastating to read those kinds of figures for those children who have not only been taken from their parents or perhaps lost parents, but then also have their entire view of where they've come from completely shifted. You mentioned the the annexation of Crimea here. Is this a reminder for us that you know Putin's obsession with with acquiring more territory for Russia is something you have to put in a much longer scale and wider context. You know, this conflict we're in at the moment has has lasted for such a prolonged amount of time, but we have to unfortunately also realize that this obsession is going to be a, a lifelong thing for him and uh, a perhaps an eternal thing from from Russia's perspective. And we're seeing that this is clearly he's considering, well, we might not be doing so well now, but I have tactics to think I, this may help me have a better opportunity in a few years' time. Yeah, if this is what he's planning, and if it is true what Melinda Simmons is saying, that actually this is kind of a hollowing out of people who might in the future be able to defend Ukraine, he is thinking long term. Now, of course, President Putin's not really going to admit that, is he? So <laughs> we just have to watch from afar and try and put these puzzle pieces together and, and work out what his strategy is. But it seemingly is going to be something that's going to be pushing for years. He has maintained that he uh, will continue with this special military operation, as he calls it. He's constantly talking about NATO's push on the boundaries with Russia there. And the more that NATO discusses the introduction of more nations to that alliance, the more there is going to be this rhetoric and this pushback from Russia saying that it's not right that actually Russia is the nation that needs to be worried. So this is all a case of political strategy, political messaging, and probably trying to work out how in maybe a few years time, they might get more successes than they're actually achieving right now. This to me clearly feels like a a, a war crime. Things that Putin have done have been classified as such. But is there anything that could really result in comeuppance for Putin or does he feel unpunishable in many ways, or particularly at least from, you know, from us here in the in the West? There's not really much of a way to to punish Putin. If that were to happen, it will become from internal disarray in Russia. But there's not really a direct line to do anything to hold him to account. Not really, and that seems to be the mad thing, doesn't it? Somebody can do something horrific, or you know, stage war on a nation, invade illegally. And yet, unless they are willing to comply with the international rules system, then there is not really any way to punish them other than the things that have already been exerted on Russia, like sanctions economically and trying to starve that military machine, as the UK called it, that way. Now, there has, of course, already been an arrest warrant put out for Putin in relation to this. That was put out by the Hague's International Criminal Court, calling it unlawful deportation of children. That's the sort of crime that he's accused of doing there. But if he's not willing to abide by the laws and systems that are already in place, how do you punish it? Yeah, I mean, this is clearly the actions of someone who does not care about these international laws. And then we're trying to punish him using them. But what can you do other than token gestures? It feels all a little bit futile, but then like something that simply we couldn't not do that at the same time. And that's exactly what Russia and the Kremlin probably want. They can effectively continue in the way that they are working, pushing into Ukraine where they can, 
The West is the sort of opposite side of this. All they're able to do really is offer up military aid to Ukraine so Ukraine can fight its own battles. But in terms of actually the legal ramifications of this currently, it's very difficult to try to police it. And without further aggression from Russia, perhaps pushing into to NATO's boundaries, which we don't think will happen currently because it would be a bit of a bold move from Putin. Um, I don't really know what, what other options that there are to try to tackle this other than policing within those parts of Ukraine that are currently under Ukrainian rule, trying to stop those children being taken. But it's really difficult if parts of Ukraine are now being controlled by Russia and Russian troops to, to try and work out exactly how to stop them being removed. Finally, something a little bit lighter to end the show on. Laura, it has been suggested that a bear in a zoo in China might actually just be a person in a suit. Could that be the case? <laughs> this is brilliant. So this is will come from a social media video that has been circulated online, gone viral, of this sun bear called Angela, who has been standing in a zoo in Hangzhou in China uh, and waving at the crowds. Now, when you look at this video, the way that that bear is standing, it does look very lifelike. Yeah. And there's a lot of people looking at yeah. it thinking, how can a bear, that does look like a bloke in a suit, or a woman, a small person at least, but <laughs> in that suit. And they're, lo they're looking specifically at the sort of details on the fur of this bear, because it's got a really baggy bum. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah, I noticed that the the menswear guy, the Derek guy, the workwear on Twitter, of uh, many a, a outfit controversy at the moment waded in. And I thought it was quite funny that he said that Zaya, a wrinkly seat happens when the back rise is too long <laughs> in terms of this outfit. I love that he's critiquing what could be an actual bear's just fur, but he's still <laughs> managing to critique the tailoring of it as or well. Or perhaps just like offering a little advice if it is indeed a man in a bear suit as to how you can make this look a little bit more realistic yeah. or just better fitting. Yeah, what what have the zoo said about this? Because I mean, I imagine they must be somewhat frustrated. It's not exactly good PR to make it look like you don't have real animals in your zoo, is it? No, absolutely not. And they keep putting statements out in the voice of this bear, Angela, uh, saying when it comes to yeah, <laughs> they're humanising the human bear. Exactly. It's probably mm, quite unhelpful. Technique, guys, interesting technique. <laughs> so they were saying when it comes to bears, the first thing that comes to mind is a huge figure uh, and danger personified. But those kinds of bears are petite; they're the smallest bears in the world. Uh, okay. And another spokesperson has basically said that at forty degrees centigrade, which is what it is in that part of China right now, that actually if it was a man in a fur suit, then they would only last a few minutes before collapsing. So that's their kind of defence there. But they're maintaining that it is uh, a real bear and not a man in a suit. No. I mean, I do think China could have a bit of a bear propaganda problem going on. I remember a few years ago, I went to, to Chengdu and visited the pandas there. And I was quite astounded by a poster which said, the pandas are so clever, they know the best bamboo to eat. And I kind of looked and thought, yeah, but they eat bamboo. Yeah. which is inherently not a very clever thing for them to do. So, yeah, you have to be <laughs> wary of how China frames its pandas. In yeah, some absolutely. Ways. And they've also been accused, of course, other zoos of doing things like painting donkeys to look like zebras, which, of course, they'll deny again. But, yeah. I mean, very confusing. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for joining me in the Bunker Global today. You're welcome. And that's the end of this edition. 
Listeners, if you enjoyed the show, we'll be back next Friday for another edition. And of course, there's a new episode of The Bunker every day, handmade by humans. Remember, you can get them early, plus exciting new merchandise for backers coming soon when you back us on Patreon. Thank you for listening. I'm Jacob Jarvis. See you next time. Global was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis and Laura Macon Isherwood. The producer was Liam Tate, the production assistant was Adam Wright, and audio production was by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production. <laughs>